You're listening to Recorded, and this is episode two of Remembering 9-11, a two-part series. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, we encourage you to start there. It's available now, right here on Recorded. Now here's episode two. Brian and Christina Stanton watched the second plane hit the North World Trade Center tower and fled Manhattan, covered in a sticky yellow-gray ash. Christina was wearing her pink nightgown and a pair of Brian's formerly white socks when she jumped off a railing 10 feet down into a boat on the Hudson River. I I remember very well when we got in the boat, uh, the people who were there, because there were bloodied people, there were people barely wearing anything, and then there were people who didn't have a lick of dust on them, looked like they had just gotten their hair done. You know, just your typical kind of like, it's it's almost like where 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 the attacks were and, and when they left their apartment was what they looked like, you know? So, um, but it was this, uh, there were animals, there were, I, I remember seeing a bird. Uh, somebody brought their pet bird on the boat. There was dogs, there was cats. It was a, it was a zoo with people in all different states of, of uh, people who had escaped from the towers to somebody who just probably finished their workout at a, at a fitness gym next door. So it was a, it was really something else. Yeah, it was a true. Nobody process. asked the boat owner where they were going. You didn't ask such things. You're just like, and you didn't care either. You just wanted out, out and off. And once we uh, got off the pier, we didn't know where we were. We didn't know, you know, uh, what to do, where to go. We had nothing with us. But we had heard some people say... You're listening to the Remembering 9-11 series on Recorded, the all-new storytelling podcast from the Gospel Coalition. And this is episode two, The Most Hopeful People. Turns out, Christina and Brian were in Paula's Hook, New Jersey. They walked with some of their fellow passengers over to a BJ's wholesale club. They were able to use the bathroom, wash their eyes, get a drink of water, and have something to eat for the first time that day. From the television sets in this store, they began to learn what had happened. They heard the name Osama bin Laden for the first time. They found out the airline industry had been grounded, except for fighter jets that were patrolling the New York airspace. Colleges had canceled class. Disney World was shut down. The Mall of America in Minneapolis and the Sears Tower in Chicago were evacuated. Mount Rushmore and the Hoover Dam were closed. And Manhattan had been locked up tight. All the bridges and tunnels onto the island were closed. Even if they'd wanted to, there was no way Brian and Christina could get back home. The couple managed to snag one of the last cars from Dollar Rent-A-Car and then drove for an hour to find an available hotel room. Christina remembers standing in front of the front desk clerk, asking for complimentary toiletries. Which ones? The clerk asked. Christina, in a yellow mohawk and pajamas, stared at her. All of them. And I just wanted, I just wanted to be clean. And I put my dog in the, the shower and literally, I remember thinking, I'm not even going to deal with soap right now. I'm going to let this water run over us. And I remember it literally was like a full 15 minutes until the water wearing clear enough. Mm. It looked like, it looked like a phone oatmeal in the tub, you know, for a full 15 minutes to w- let this stuff get out. I mean, it was embedded. And also too, I had scratches on my eyeballs and a lot of people did mm. and so, like my dog did as well, because again, the ground up glass in the dust, I knew something's wrong. Don't rub your eyes. People who rub their eyes got scratches on their corneas and really hurt their eyes. So I watched people rub their eyes, scream. And I said, I can't do what they're doing. Something's bad. So I didn't The dust was created when each floor of the World Trade Centers crashed onto the floor under it, pulverizing it, and then shooting it out on hurricane-like winds created by the force of those successive impacts. Because the dust was crushed into such tiny pieces, it lingered in the air. Even more than a mile north, the smell was so strong you could taste it in your mouth, and it lasted for months. If you're thinking, that can't be good, you're right. Over time, survivors would report all manner of health problems, from asthma to chronic laryngitis to cancer. On September 12, one train into Manhattan opened up. Brian and Christina were on it, 
eerily alone. They emerged from the station into a quiet city that was pasted over with flyers on light posts, traffic lights, shop windows, mailboxes, smiled the faces of the missing. Underneath, family members begged for information. Have you seen this person? Staring, the Stantons slowly made their way to Christina's best friend Sarah's apartment, where they'd begin their couch surfing while they waited for officials to say if their building was stable enough to re-enter. Christina could barely sleep. She operated on hyperdrive, walking for hours around the city, sometimes stopping by the Salvation Army post to grab some shampoo or some free clothing. Brian, on the other hand, slept all the time. He learned that one of his close friends, a fraternity brother, didn't make it out. The friend had worked for Cantor Fitzgerald, a financial firm that lost 658 people, two-thirds of its New York office, on 9-11. There were so many funerals, the firm had to set up an internal calendar to track them all. Another real concern was pets. Dozens of the New Yorkers who'd fled or died in the attacks left dogs, cats, and birds behind in their apartments. Building managers and emergency volunteers worked to find them and reunite them with their owners if they could. Brian and Christina had a different problem. Their dog Gabby wasn't able to keep down any food. They took him to the vet, who told them Gabby had ingested ground glass when he was trying to lick himself clean of the ash and dust. He had cuts on his esophagus, cuts on his eyes, and a distressed respiratory system. The bill was $517. Brian and Christina weren't destitute, but they were unemployed. He'd been interviewing for jobs in finance, but now the financial district was literally rubble. Christina had been a tour guide in lower Manhattan, and now her workplace was collapsed, covered in ash, and guarded by the military as rescue workers looked for bodies. Neither one could earn a paycheck in the foreseeable future. Christina was worried enough about money to start talking to her friends about it. Uh, I did have a very close friend. Her name was Michelle Jennings, and we met at a show, one of the sh- a show that um, that we both uh, were in the cast. And her husband was the uh, the minister of music at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I uh, and so I I knew he I knew who he was, and we were friends as well. Redeemer was just twelve years old, already an unlikely success in a city famous for its enlightened secularism. Tim Keller's church plant had grown from 50 to 2,800 in attendance on any given Sunday. In a few days, Christina would meet Andrea Mungo, the social worker who headed up Redeemer's care for its congregation. The first week, you know, it was a Tuesday. So that first week was all about prayer and mobilizing. Um, We had groups of people come into the office every day to pray. So that was just beautiful to see Redeemerites just come together in prayer. Um, and the, the, the other thing that we wanted to do immediately was to call every member and make sure that all of our people were okay. People started calling the office saying, we want to give money. Where do we send money? Redeemer hadn't asked anyone for money, but its surprising growth over the past decade meant churches knew it was there and they didn't know how else to help. Across the country, churches started dropping checks in the mail. In total, they would send more than $2 million unsolicited dollars to Redeemer. We want to get this money into the hands of people that need it, who are, have been directly affected, um, you know, either who have lost, lost family members in the towers or lost jobs. And so we, we went into outreach mode and we created um, an outreach card uh, and um, printed it on our copier and we, on that Saturday, that very first Saturday, there were three teams of um, people that went out to mainly Union Square Park, um, but also other areas around, you know, we couldn't get close to where it was happening. So we just kind of went out. It was very specific. Were you directly or indirectly affected by this tragedy? Please call our, our phone number and name of the church. And by Monday, People were calling and wanting to come in, and we were making appointments. But before Monday came Sunday, the first worship service after 9-11. In some places, like Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, it was their third service since the attacks. They gathered first on Tuesday for a prayer meeting to focus on lament, and then Wednesday to focus on humility. Sunday morning was 
hope. The earth was shaking underneath. We, you know, we didn't know, okay, will my water system be contaminated and will 50,000 people die of poison in Minneapolis tomorrow? And uh, so uh, I, I knew that um, insecurity and, and deep sense of destabilization of soul, not just uh, life in, in, in America, but our own souls was prominent. And so I, I preached for moments 8, 35 to 39. My main remembrance was not so much the size, but the intensity of it. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a person who loves reverence in church services, and most church services begin with chatty uh, meetings and everybody's kind of chipper and and then you have to work to help people to get more or less serious towards the things of God and that wasn't true that Sunday. <laughs> there, there, there wasn't a lot of chipper baseball talk going on. Uh, this, this was a service where people realized either what we believe is real or we're playing games here I'm not going to try to play a game this morning. We really need to go hard after after God. God has a way of taking the the moments in life that seem to, from one angle, uh, call the faith into question, and from another angle, make things so frightening and so real that you got to have a God. you got to have something stable. And so it doesn't drive you away. It pulls you pulls you in. I think that I think that was happening on on that morning. In Washington DC, Mark Dever held a special prayer service at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, I gave a brief address and shared the gospel. We prayed. The following Sunday we had a guest preacher here. I I just let him go. Wait. What? Five days after terrorists slammed a plane into the Pentagon, about four miles from where he's sitting and he's letting a seminary kid preach the message? I contacted Mark Dever, the pastor at Capitol Hill, and I told him, Mark, I'm happy to sit this one out and for you to preach this Sunday. Bert Daniel was in school at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and would have to wait for air travel to resume before he could get from Louisville to D.C. Mark told him to come on over. He didn't change a thing about the service except to add in his own quick, 10-minute reminder of the certainty of God's justice and the importance of being prepared to die. Then he turned things over to Bert. But here's why. So months prior, maybe even a year prior, Mark had planned a two-week series on the book of Habakkuk. The first week was the Sunday before 9-11. The second week was the Sunday after 9-11. And the title of the series was when bad things happen. Um, the first Sunday, Jamie Dunlop, who is uh, on staff at Capitol Hill now, he preached Habakkuk 1 and 2, and the pre-chosen title for the message was Questions. So, uh, you know, what, what questions do we have when bad things happen? And then the second week, which was the week I was supposed to be preaching, uh, the pre-chosen title was Confidence. How can we have confidence when bad things happen? So it was just really remarkable, uncanny how the Lord had designed all of that. And so as a result, uh, Mark felt compelled just to move forward with the sermon schedule as it had been formulated and designed. And so, you know, that says a lot about Mark too. I mean, just his confidence in the Lord's sovereignty, his willingness to share his pulpit with young men who are training for ministry. Um, for a 26-year-old, even for one whose grandpa preached the Sunday after Pearl Harbor, the experience was a little nerve-wracking. Um, I will say a few things that really set me at ease. One was um, just Mark's confidence in the Lord's sovereignty that, like, God's planned this. It's obvious, like, he was, his hand is involved in the sermon schedule and everything and so this text and um so that that gave me a sense of confidence i think the other thing is just um having a confidence in god's word you know capitol hill is really a church that wants to hear from god's word and so there was a sense too that i don't have any real special obligation this week except to 
study this passage, try to understand it as best I can, and then to communicate what it's saying and try to apply it as best I can to the circumstances, you know, the tragic events that are taking place this week. And so there was a real sense of ease and peace and calm that came with just knowing that the Lord's in control of this. And my only job here is is just to communicate what's already been uh, revealed. Well, you know, Habakkuk. In New York, Tim Keller did change his text. He stepped out of his series on Jonah and into John. Even more than Capitol Hill Baptist, his church was packed. The week before 9-11, Redeemer's probably average attendance was like 2,800 people. Okay. Okay. The Sunday after 9-11, there was 53 or 5,400 people that showed up for service. That's not that unusual. The whole city was like that. Um, At one point, we went out... uh, one of the morning services, I went out there, and like 15 minutes before we were to start, not only was the place packed, but there were lines out the back door. So I did an audible with the musicians. I said, would you be willing to do a second service after this service? Yeah. They said, sure. Okay. So what we had, we had ushers go running out and say, come back in two hours, and there'll be another service. Okay. At this point, you were doing one service. We were only doing one morning service in that location. Okay, gotcha. Okay, and and yeah, all I remember is like eight or nine hundred people showed up for the second service, even though we'd never had one before, and we just we just called an audible. We sent everybody away. They Keller back. preached on Jesus' reaction to the death of Lazarus. The Son of God. But here's what he offers: not a consolation, a resurrection. What do you mean, you say? What do you mean, not a consolation? Well, here's what I mean. Jesus does not say, if you, if you trust in me, someday I'll take you away from all this. You know, I wish I could get away from the sight of lower Manhattan. You know, that's, it's, it's unbelievable. We're going to have to live with that for years. You know, I mean, I, you know and does Jesus come and say, I will take you away from all this. Someday, if you believe in me, I'll take you to some kind of wonderful paradise where your mortal soul will will just be able to forget about all this. I don't want a place like that right now. I'm so upset and mad about what we've lost. But Jesus Christ does not say, I give you consolation. He says, I'm giving you resurrection. What is resurrection? Resurrection means... I have come to not just take you out of the earth to heaven, but to bring the power of heaven down to earth to make a new heavens and new earth and make everything new. I'm going to restore everything that was lost and then a million times better. It'll be a million times better than you can imagine. Everything. The power of my future. The power of the new heavens and new earth. The power of the joy that will come and the wholeness that will come and the health that will come and the newness that will come and all the tears will be gone, all the suffering and all the death and all disease and all that will be wiped out. The power of that is going to incorporate and envelop everything. Everything's going to be made better. Everything's going to be made right. He also said something to his people that Piper and Dever didn't have to say. Please stay. And I don't remember the whole sermon, but a phrase that he said really got to my heart because he said, are you here to serve the city? Judy Cha worked at Redeemer's Counseling Center. We are here to serve the city, right? And that's exactly what brought me to the city. Just a reminder to help me feel stable again. God wants me here. But we soon realize as the churches around the nation were sending us funding and there were people lined up at our offices to see our mercy ministry for financial assistance, for counseling, prayer support. That all started on Monday. It was Mike O'Neill's first day as director of Hope for New York, which is Redeemer's external mercy ministry. It supplies funding and volunteers to dozens of nonprofits around the city. They do things like tutor kids, take meals and worship services to an AIDS hospice, serve the hungry, work with immigrants, and support couples with unexpected pregnancies. But the job Mike got hired for was not the job he stepped into. And I do think that for the first six months of my job, I was, I, we were doing relief work. Mike asked his partner nonprofits what they needed and then got to work supplying extra money and volunteers. 
The surge of church attendance also meant a surge of volunteers. He had so many that he couldn't always find enough for them to do. At the same time, Redeemer's Flyer was making its way around town, and word was spreading from friend to friend, from Salvation Army Centers to Southern Baptist cleanup crews. Do you need money for groceries or rent? Redeemer can help. The church phone started ringing, and its office lobby filled up with people. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Manhattan had already lost 60,000 jobs, and that didn't even count potential jobs like the one Brian was interviewing for, or the ones that would disappear over the next couple months as businesses and residents fled the city. At one point, one out of every four Redeemer elders would be unemployed. So the, what we were able to offer was one-time assistance with basic needs like rent, mortgage payments, food, utility bills. It was truly a job that was difficult to hear these stories and yet a joy to many of them shared the gospel with them. And um, when it was an open door and to be praying with them was really um, an honor. So when Christina's friend, Michelle told her to take her money problems to Redeemer, both Christina and Brian resisted. They weren't victims, they reasoned. They could probably figure out a way to get the bills paid. And there were so many more people who needed it more. But Michelle knew their situation. When Brian and Christina finally got back into their apartment, 12 days after 9-11, they found a really thick layer of dusty ash had blown in through those open terrace doors. Scraps of papers, office memos, reports, lists of numbers had landed all over their floor. On a neighbor's terrace were pieces from the second plane. Not only were Brian and Christina carrying the unexpected expenses of the car rental, food, hotel stays, and vet bills, they also had to replace some of their belongings and thoroughly clean the rest. The costs were adding up. Get over to Redeemer, Michelle told Christina. This is exactly for people like you. Finally, without telling Brian, she went. I had a lot of nerves about, my, what, are, what are they going to ask me? I don't want to be telling my story to complete strangers. I'm at a church and I'm asking for financial help. Are they going to make me promise to start coming to their church? Am I going to have to come back here with receipts? Am I going to have to commit to going to church and a bunch of endless phone calls for follow-up? Like, like what am I signing up for? You know, I had that, that kind of uh, very skeptical sense of, like, certainly they're just not handing out money. Certainly that there's going to be a catch to it, right? They did ask her a question. How can we help you? And basically everything I had said that I was not going to do kind of went out the door because they, these two women, for one thing, were the sweetest, kindest, most loving, gentle people. You could tell that. You know, that they were that way to their core from their demeanor. And I just think that that put me at, at ease, that I just kind of vomited our whole experience. And here's what happened to us. I remember crying and just really going there with our, in a way that I think I hadn't told anybody about what happened to us. It just kind of tumbled out. And they were so responsive as they, they clearly cared. We, we, they, they didn't offer a lot as far as like any advice or I just, their whole demeanor told me that they cared. And it was the first people I felt like did care. And then they handed me a check and that was it. So I remember walking out feeling like, wow, that was, that was just so amazing that these two strangers cared that much. They produced a check to help. You know, who is, who are these people? Who is this church? What is this? I'd never even heard of such a thing of just handing up money like that. I want to take a minute here to explain something. Maybe your church doesn't have a counseling center. Maybe your church doesn't have a professional social worker to head up diaconate work. Maybe your church doesn't have its own charity organization to work in your city. My church doesn't have any of those things. Even for a church of nearly 3,000, that's a lot of mercy ministries. There are two reasons for this. First, Redeemer's focus on outward ministries, like the work that Hope for New York did, was patterned after historical reformed diaconates in Europe. Keller loved them so much and wrote about them for so long that his dissertation is now one of the longest in the history of Philadelphia's Westminster Theological Seminary. The robust services inside the church for Redeemer's own members developed a little bit later. I asked Redeemer Pastor David Bisgrove about that. 
because the church grew so quickly and because what you have in a place like New York City is a bunch of people who have moved that don't have their normal support system. So they're living by themselves. Their lives are fairly uprooted. Um, and so the combination of you may need some financial support because you've lost your job and marrying that with some kind of spiritual support because you've lost your job and your closest relative is a thousand miles away and you moved here because you were trying to get out you're trying to get rid of the church and you've been showing up on sundays but you're not really that connected to take care of that population redeemer had leaned in hard to internal support services so that meant when 9-11 happened the church didn't have to quickly invent a bunch of programs they just needed to scale up what they already had before the first week was out, Andrea Munga was writing job descriptions. So we hired five people to help logistically do this work. At the counseling center, instead of four or five new patients a week, they were getting 10 to 15. Initially, folks who were already struggling, say, with anxiety or depression or substance abuse, who were just, you know, their symptoms were escalated because of this crisis and the stress that came up. So that's what we were seeing, like a rise in that. And then eventually we were offering crisis counseling and it was all free by because of the generosity of the, all the gifts that were. And then we were seeing that those were directly impacted. Stories like folks coming in because they had talked to their loved one right before they arrived at work. Did they, were they in the building? They weren't sure. Are they somewhere and can't get a hold of them? So these stories, um, you know, firefighters who were just grieving because they couldn't do enough and they lost their comrades and recounting stories of their last, you know, conversations with their comrades. <sighs> yeah, it was heavy. Redeemer's pastors were also working overtime. While tragedies often elevate church attendance, that increase in numbers rarely lasts. But Redeemer's bump just kept going and going. In the end, they'd keep nearly a thousand new members. And all of them needed to be welcomed, discipled, and folded into community groups. Some were new conversions, some were lapsed Christians returning to the fold. You've already met two of them. Brian was more about attending church than I was. Yeah. I think I would eventually made it around, but he wanted to do this now. Yeah. I'm like, okay. You know, I, I was still feeling like I didn't want to go anywhere after 9-11. I was still wanting to be a homebody and nest and lick my wounds. And But he was like, no, we got to get up and go. So it was the, the, the push for, for church attendance really came from him. So the Holy Spirit was obviously prompting him as well. They decided to try out Redeemer. They were impressed with the way the church had already cared for them, and they figured if other churches were sending them money, then Redeemer must be legit. I was so impressed with the service. I was impressed with Tim Keller spoke that day. We really resonated with what he was saying. My husband was very much like, I'm ready. He was ready to get involved, <laughs> find out more about Jesus. I, I want to give my life to something that is... that means something. I mean, he was ready to check it out, check out who Jesus is, commit his life to Christ. I was more of a slow and steady drip. And since I am an extrovert, what actually made a big difference to me was being in community with other Christians. That really brought me to Christ in a very tangible way. It wasn't long before Brian and Christina signed up for a membership class. Months later, Brian came on staff as Redeemer's chief financial officer, which he's still doing, and Christina worked for a while as an administrative assistant at the church planting center. It was an interesting time to be doing church planting in New York. Lower Manhattan was a crime scene. The last World Trade Center fire wouldn't be put out until December. It took weeks for the dust to settle. Christina was wiping it off her furniture every day and nine months to clean up the tons of wreckage. Thousands of businesses were destroyed or displaced. For many people, it made a lot more sense to move away 
and over the next 10 years, nearly 2 million people did. With the city emptied out, under construction, and losing jobs, many feared New York would slide right back into the high crime rates and fleeing population of the 1980s and 90s. Tim Keller knew that already on September 16. I'm not being that strong. I'm not, pro- I'm not proposing this. I hope it's not true that over the next months and years, New York will be a more dangerous place to live. I hope it's not true. I hope it's not true that this will be a very difficult place to live economically or politically or, you know, in other ways. I hope that this does not become, uh, it, it feels like it today, does it not? But the fact is I hope it does not become a more difficult, dangerous place, a more expensive place economically to live, a vocationally to live, a more difficult and expensive place to, to be emotionally and everything. I hope not, but if it does, let's stay. Let's enter in. Let's be, let's be part of the problems. You, you know, it's not just fixing. It's not just telling people the truth. What the city's going to need are our neighbors and friends and people who are willing to live here and just be a great city. And, and what we need, for example, it may be more difficult and expensive just to be Redeemer for the next few months and years. I don't know. I hope not. But if it does, then that's the best thing we can do for the city. Just be ourselves, though it's going to maybe cost more money, maybe take more time. Maybe we're going to have to be able to be a little less concerned about our own careers and more concerned about the community. So let's enter in. Let's weep with those who weep. Let's not be afraid of that. Okay? Let's not just have to fix it. Redeemer entered in. in. Not only that, but they pulled others along as well. Terry Geiger was the director of the church planting center then. Immediately, I got phone calls from young men wanting to come to New York to serve the church or start churches. It was uncanny. Presbyterians, Baptists, independents, galvanized by 9-11 and inspired by Redeemer's effectiveness, planters kept asking Redeemer what they could do. And we were able to help every pastor who had come. So we, we brought them together, we trained them, we prayed for them, and um, it, was, it was amazing what happened. What happened was that Redeemer helped plant about a dozen churches in partnership with networks and denominations, and they aided even more with funds and training. In the decade after 9-11, more than 70 evangelical churches started in New York City Center. From one angle, it seems like an odd choice to pour so much energy into starting other churches when your own needs all the time and attention it can get. But from another angle, the timing was perfect. So I think people were just trying to process it. Um, you know, we had a lot of people in our circle, had non-Christian friends that we were just having groups get together for dinner and just talk and, you know, meet up. I think people were trying to process what this meant. That's Chris Jamona, a Redeemer elder. You might remember his story from the first episode. And I think it, in some sense, for some people, whether it lasts or not, it is sort of a wake-up call. Whether that wake-up call lasts more than a week, a month, a year, two years, you know, you never know. Only God knows. But there's there's the people where it's a wake-up call, and then there's the other people where, you know, it is for a time, and then this too shall pass. Andrea Mungo was seeing the same thing. You know, it was a unique opportunity as a church to to really love and preach to a suffering city. And I remember so many spiritual conversations with people strangers on the subway or, you know, just people I would run into regularly um, around the church office and even up in Harlem. You know, the, the opportunity for spiritual conversations was ripe. The numbers bear that out. Nearly 40% of Manhattan's evangelical churches were planted after 2000, according to sociologist Tony Carnes. During one two-month stretch in 2009, a new church opened its doors in Manhattan every single week. The amount of evangelical New Yorkers grew from just 1% in 1990 to 3% in 2011 to 5% in 2016. So here's Redeemer, sitting in the middle of Manhattan, working like mad to dig into all the opportunities, planting churches, counseling, evangelizing. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I did get a call from, he was a PCA pastor in Oklahoma City. And he actually called me that week and warned me that you don't realize if it'll be years before 
your people in your city are over the shock of this and burnout and people will want to leave the faith and pastors will quit the ministry because it's just so it's much more traumatic than you think and he was right how long can you go before you burn out how many stories can you hear how many hours can you volunteer over five months, Andrea's small team helped 767 families and individuals. She remembers praying for her staff and encouraging them and hanging on to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I think the other thing that has stayed with me from day one at, at Redeemer is preaching the gospel to myself. And I had to do that so much more in those days. And um, I have to keep, I have, the, the gospel is for, not just for when you believe, it's, it's for when you keep believing and you keep walking with Jesus. And uh, that, it, it's, it's, when we keep remembering the gospel, it lifts the burden. It, it enables us to keep walking this, this life of faith in a suffering world and in a way that nothing else can, can truly do for us. At Hope for New York, director Mike O'Neill was exhausted. But towards the end of those six months, I personally was at a place where um, the, the six months of being engaged in that on a daily basis had taken an emotional and spiritual toll. Um, and I'm not embarrassed to say that I went to see a counselor a few times just to talk that through. Um, and to pick up a few sort of tools um, in order to respond to that. Um, you know, I remember one of them was to just simply stop reading the New York Times every day. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, it sounds kind of funny, but, you know, the New York Times at the time printed a bio of every victim um, over the course of weeks. And, uh, and I do remember sort of reading that on the way, you know, on the subway every morning, um, and, and being a New Yorker, there were, there were quite a large number of people that I grew up with. I'm, I wouldn't say that I was close friends with them, but they were part of my community um, who died. Um, and to just sort of constantly see their faces and stories was pretty upsetting. Mike wasn't the only helper who was ready for some counseling after six months of secondary trauma and compassion fatigue. As Hope for New York and the Diaconate wrapped up their overtime, the demand for the counseling center never seemed to let up. So we did hit a wall okay, in that not so much because, I mean, we were tired and we were seeing a lot of people hurting and being traumatized as well. Um, but it showed up internally with a polarization of some sort within our team. Because remember, we grew very, very fast. So we hired people who were, we felt, who were committed to the Lord. They were all Christians. And they all said that they do Christian counseling. But we really didn't have a very firm idea about what Redeemer Counseling's approach is and what keeps us together. So what happened was there was this polarization that began. It, it began and it began got worse slowly mm -hmm. so by the time 2003 june there was an internal like break the, the director resigned and uh, about half of the staff also but in the hindsight Everybody was exhausted. I mean, the first year was everybody was on adrenaline. There was depression. Um, there were um, uh, both my wife and I had had um, uh, ill. We we had major illnesses during that time. Uh, and um, about two years later, we looked around and realized that the the staff was unhappy. Um, that I had gotten because of my illness and Kathy's illness sort of detached from the staff mm -hmm. that there was a, a lot of um, I don't think the congregation felt it right. but inside the staff we actually had to rebuild the whole staff hmm. it's a long story I think I made um, a number of mistakes at that period I just felt like it would somehow run without me 
Okay, I spent. I, I preached. I still led. Yeah. Took care of myself. Took care of my wife. Yeah. But after about two years or so, I kind of resurfaced and realized uh, I didn't really know the people. They felt detached from me. Yeah. I had not been a good leader. So, and and there was a lot of that. Nine yeah. Eleven was both um, put everybody on adrenaline, and then there was just a lot of crashing. Sure, sure. It was a hard time. Yeah. As Tim Keller will tell you, suffering will not leave you unchanged. It can make you hard and bitter, feeling far from God, or it can soften and sweeten you and deepen your faith. The trauma of 9-11 didn't leave anyone alone, even if you weren't in New York. Scott Croft was a member of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. You might remember him running outside of Mark Dever's office in the first episode. But at the time, it was a bunch of young people, a lot of 20-somethings. My wife and I were 29, um, people who had, you know, Never been touched by death, never seen it, never smelled it. You know, just, it's all going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And so there was a good, I remember a really good dynamic of, okay, this happened. God is good and sovereign, so it's still going to be fine. One of those lessons that you can't get but for the circumstances. It was a hard coming-of-age moment for the entire group um, all at once. Mark was... Mark and the elders were very good about it in the sense that they were pastorally sensitive and at the same time brought a sort of Puritan ethos to it. Life has been hard before. It'll be hard again. This is a tragedy. Love God, serve one another. He's right there on his throne where he was on the 10th. That sort of consistency paid huge dividends. That sort of perspective paid huge, paid huge dividends that I saw at the church. One of the best ways to take advantage of suffering, to make sure it pulls you toward God instead of pushing you away, is to know it's coming. That's straight out of Psalm 1, John Piper says. A lesson that I would, I would plead with pastors, the time between calamities is the time to prepare your people for the calamities. It's, it, you, you build a vision of God, you build a vision of his sovereignty, you, you, you build a theology of suffering in the good times so that your people have roots. That's one image, you know, uh, blessed is the man who meditates on the Lord day and night. He's like a tree that's planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season. Even when the drought comes, he doesn't doesn't dry up. Well, how does that happen? Well, by sending roots down in the peaceful times. Even before 9-11, America's long Christian roots were beginning to curl up. Until the 1990s, Christianity was what Keller calls thick, which means virtually everyone believed in God and in an afterlife and in sin. Most people respected their pastors highly, and they had a church home, even if they didn't go there regularly. But before and around 9-11, the numbers began to shift. Americans began to be less likely to believe in God, less likely to go to church, less likely to read their Bibles or to pray. The percent of those who formally belonged to a church, which had hovered around 70% for decades, began a steady decline. Today, it's less than 50%. Before 9-11, the bad guys were the atheists, the commies. And therefore, to be against the people who were trying to kill us was to be against atheists. Now, the people who are trying to kill us were religious believers. In fact, very conservative, you might say, religious believers. And I could tell that that, that meant a change. And I did see that. And I did recognize that this changes things because now, instead of religion being the bulwark against the thing that, that the people who are trying to kill us now religious people highly religious people are the enemy and that definitely changes the way people are thinking about things there's no doubt about that in 2004 a book called the end of faith blamed the islamic religion for 9-11 and argued that religion is the enemy of reason and should be rooted out of society the author, Sam Harris, was joined on the bestseller list by writers like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. In 2006, journalist Gary Wolf started calling these men the new atheists because they actively argued against religion and evangelized for atheism. Two years later, Tim Keller would write his own bestseller, The Reason for God, to refute them. 
the book would elevate his profile so much that he would no longer be able to spend time after his services talking to church members and curious New Yorkers who'd dropped in. Redeemer had become a tourist destination for Christians. Now those who lined up to see him were visitors from out of town. Here's Redeemer Pastor David Bisgrove again. We became more of a known thing. Yeah. Celebrity is not always a good word, but there was a celebrity yeah. that was already building about Tim yeah. and about Redeemer generally because of our context. Yeah. Um, for those, whatever, 11, 12 years before 9-11 and those next eight to nine years, we became more of a movement. And I don't think it's unrelated to 9-11. It was going to happen anyway, but 9-11 certainly elevated our profile. Yeah, that makes sense. In- An elevated profile can bear a lot of fruit. Redeemer grew to 5,000 attendees meeting at three locations. They continued to minister to thousands through Hope for New York. They reimagined employment through the Center for Faith and Work. They supported hundreds of church plants through city to city. The Counseling Center, with a philosophy written up by Keller, continued to expand. And by the time COVID hit, they were able to handle a record number of client sessions online. Keller began to headline conferences and wrote books like Counterfeit Gods, Generous Justice, and The Meaning of Marriage. He was able to speak truth in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Newsweek. In 2005, he co-founded the Gospel Coalition. Sociologist Tony Carnes wrote this, Once Keller gained a beachhead in Manhattan Center City, there was a galvanizing effect on the whole city. And because New York City also occupies mind space around the world, a change in its symbolic center starts to have global effects. In March 2020, New York City became a global hotspot for a brand new tragedy. In less than three months, 20,000 lives were lost there to COVID-19. For a few days, a New Yorker was dying every two minutes. The city systems couldn't handle it. The Army and National Guard were called out to help with body removals from homes, hospitals, and nursing homes. Corpses were stacked up in refrigerated trucks. The South Brooklyn Marine Terminal, which was used to sift debris after 9-11, was transformed into a massive morgue. The line to get a body into any of the four city crematoriums was months long. Funeral homes were turning people away. It didn't take long for people to start wondering if lungs compromised by 9-11 dust would have a hard time with the coronavirus. And um, I got uh, I got a very bad case of it. I was hospitalized twice. I was told I had a 50% chance of survival. Christina caught COVID in March 2020 before medical professionals knew much about how to treat it. She was isolated in a hospital room, visited only by doctors and nurses who were wearing so much protective gear they looked like aliens. But for the most part, they didn't come in at all, you know, barely came in because I was so highly contagious. And so I was alone. I couldn't uh, talk on the phone. I didn't have enough breast support for that. I couldn't turn on the TV because there was all they were showing were, were these horrible stories of deaths. I couldn't turn on Facebook or any social media because people were sharing and resharing terrible stories of deaths. And I was like, this is it. I have, I have nothing. I can't, I don't have anybody here. And I remember talking to the Holy spirit out loud. I remember thinking, how oh, about those nurses watching me on their monitor? think I have just lost it. But literally I was like praying to the Holy spirit saying, Holy spirit, if this is the end of the road, I'm okay with that. And please prepare me for death. I, I don't want any anger in my heart and, and I, I want to be in peace. Help me be peaceful. Help, uh, you know, show me where I, there is no, you know, there's no peace. You know, I was, I was, I was okay. I was, I was ready. When Christina prepared for death the first time in Battery Park on 9-11, she was surrounded by people, including her husband, and she'd felt completely alone and scared. When she prepared for death the second time, Utterly isolated in her hospital room, she felt the companionship and peace of the Holy Spirit. I didn't have Christ in 9-11, and I did have Christ during COVID. It was a night and day experience. It's too early yet to tell the long-term impact the pandemic will have on churches in America. Already there are stories of members who've drifted away and churches who have closed their doors. 
And there are also stories of people finding Jesus and churches growing with the wide reach of live stream. Once again, Redeemer sits in a city whose population is fleeing to safer ground. But this time, instead of gaining members, they've lost many to cheaper, safer, less crowded towns where people can work remotely. Instead of hiring new staff, they've had to let people go. They don't even have Tim Keller to rally around. He retired from the church in 2017. But David Bisgrove, who leads Redeemer Westside, sees opportunity. So I don't know what it means for us coming out of the pandemic. I do feel like the weakness that people have been experiencing, the vulnerability, the latent sense of I'm not in control of my life is an advantage to the gospel. Because that is exactly what the gospel teaches. We are not in control. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my purpose will stand and I will accomplish all my desire. In other words, I think underneath at the very bottom is a massively strong, sovereign, wise, just, good, merciful God. And people need to know him and trust him. And then from that grows the second, and that is the cross of Jesus. In Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not with him freely give us all things? So the logic there is, if if God was actually willing not to spare the most precious being, valuable being, glorious being in the universe, but hand him over to suffering and scorn and torture for me. Will he not then be for me with his sovereignty? So it's those two things together, the sovereignty of God and the cross of Christ should make us in the midst of the worst calamities, both personal in our families and, and globally, the, the strongest, most courageous, most hopeful, most joyful people on the planet. Thanks for listening to the Remembering 9-11 series on Recorded. Recorded is part of the Gospel Coalition's podcast network. Its executive producer is Stephen Morales. It's produced and edited by Josh Diaz and me, Heather Farrell. Sound design by Josh Diaz and Robbie Herrera. Artwork by Gabriel Reyes. Our editor-in-chief is Colin Hansen. The Remembering 9-11 series was hosted and written by Sarah Zalstra. Special thanks to Andrew LaPara for assistance with production. You can find more podcasts from the Gospel Coalition at tgc.org slash podcasts.